0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen and Michael Trout conclude their two-part discussion on the importance of creating videos.
1: This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has Produced. We're first going to focus on his videos and uh, then later we will be focusing on some of his books. So I would like to, for listeners who don't know about Michael and his work, share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the child development project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979, Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He has also written and produced five videos focusing on the unique perspective of babies on divorce, adoption, loss, domestic violence, and parental incarceration. And in fact, these videos are going to be the focus of the first part of this new series I'm doing with Michael Trout. He's also the co-author with Lori Thomas, uh, foster and adoptive mother Lori Thomas, who is also now a therapist of the John. Jonathan Letters. He's the author of Baby Verses, the narrative poetry of infants and toddlers, and the producer of two meditation CDs, including See Me as a Person: Meditations for Sustaining Relationship-Based Care, and The Hope-Filled Parent: Meditations for Parents and Children Who Have Been of Parents of Children Who Have Been Harmed. He also, in 2012, co-authored, along with Mary Colerudis, a textbook for healthcare providers called See Me as a Person. I wanna draw special attention to that because I know we've been having more listeners from the medical field on the podcast and the book See Me as a Person is just a tremendous resource. For anyone working in the helping professions, although it is directed at those in healthcare settings, his final book, This Hallowed Ground, Four Decades in Infant Mental Health, was released in 2019 in audio format and donated to the Michigan Association for Infant Mental Health. So you can uh, go to their website in order to get that latest work of his the this hallowed ground so he comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor he's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today so here we go Hey, listers! I have some exciting news for you. The book *Raising the Challenging Child*, which has been co-authored with Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons Sunshine, is available for pre-order, and we want to tell you where to get it. Please go to our website raisingthechallengingchild.com for full details on how you can pre-order from your favorite bookseller. I know a lot of you are therapists and parents, and really wanting to get the concepts of attachment theory and everything that we talk about in our podcast into practical nuggets for parents that you work with, children that you work with, even your own family. So we think this is just what you're going to be looking for. The book is filled with easy to implement, research-based, family-tested strategies. We hope you'll go out and pre-order today. Welcome back everybody to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast and uh, the second part of our discussion of the the films of Michael Trouts and uh, Michael, I'm eager to continue talking about this. Uh, we've already talked about gentle transitions a bit. We talked about multiple transitions. Um, and just uh, earlier at the end of the podcast, we, we talked about that one. And you mentioned something at the end of the podcast about you know, learning and how this kind of information comes in the side door for us. Cause I was talking about, you know, why, why do they never stop having an impact? Like I, even when I sort of wish they would, I get very upset watching them. No matter, you know, maybe not, you know, That you said the first one is, is not as unhappy, but, but many of them have unhappy things in them. But you also mentioned there's a musical and a spiritual and, and, other uh pieces to these and we haven't mentioned yet in the conversation you know the actual format of these videos you know that their are words kind of coming up on a screen and music and so so speak to that format a little bit as we move into some of the other films i want to hear a little bit about that first how, how you settled on that
2: well isn't it a dumb format <laughs> <laughs> if you had, if you described it to someone and they would say, well, that's silly. It's just words on the screen. And oh yeah, there's some music in the background. And oh yeah, every once in a while you hear a child's voice. Um, so I, I had, I acknowledge that it's unusually simple and unusually complex all at the same time. Um, it's probably telling that I spent with every film, easily as much time uh, picking the, the music as I spent writing the entire script and putting the whole rest of the thing together. And that isn't because it was, there was trickery involved. I just really believe that that part of the brain that listens to music, uh, that appreciates music, is the very same part of the brain that needs to be open for this level of material to to have an impact, to get through. And that's one of the reasons I think we can listen to it more than once. Do you ever notice that people who have a favorite piece of music don't listen to it once and, and then afterward say, okay, well, I heard that. And the next time it pops up or they think about listening to it, they say, oh, no, I've already listened to that. It's never like that. You want to listen to your favorite piece of music over and over again. And I think that's why these films are at least tolerable, if not even more so, um, for people looking at them over and over again. It's very much a right brain, feeling level experience, uh, these films. And so we don't remember concepts, but we sure as the Dickens may remember the tone of voice in that particular child when she said this particular thing. Or, we remember how we felt when we watched it.
1: Yes. Yes, and, um, you know, similar to to therapy that we, in, in a therapeutic experience with, with a therapist, we may not remember content, but we remember how we felt Yes. Um, I think that was one of Ann Jernberg's m- big quotes in, early in the therapy book when someone came back and said, I don't remember what we did, but I remember how I felt with you. And it, it was just the the greatest feeling. So, okay. and
2: can I, can I interrupt you and just tell you a story? Yes. I was retiring a few years ago from clinical practice. Yes. I found myself all geared up to have some final sessions with my final maybe 30 or so patients. And at some point along the way in those last months, I found myself noticing my disappointment that no one was telling me how freaking brilliant I was. how, How wonderful it was when I said the following. Right. Nobody. So either they said nothing or they said something that of course, I can now in retrospect appreciate deeply, but may not have at the moment in my disappointment. Like, you kept me safe. Or when I walked in this room, uh, I knew it would be okay. Or I was so mad at you, but you stayed there anyhow. Or something along those lines. In other words, it was the experience of psychotherapy that was meaningful, not you, you jerk. You were just the witness, and that's kind of the ultimate compliment
1: yes 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 so so you know, summing up the format piece before we move on to to the next uh video, the family transitions video, it is like you said, kind of a strange format, the music, the words the sometimes a child or a voice reads the words, sometimes you read them yourself, no one reads them. Um, But it's the potency of it. And I, so I guess that's when you're saying, you know, it, it comes into the brain a certain way, it taps into the right brain, it taps into the emotional experience because the potency of it just never lessens this sort of odd formula of how you put them together. I think that, and and I don't even know, I mean, that was prior maybe to some of the, the decade of the brain things that we call the 90s and towards the end of the, the 90s, understanding more about the brain, you just kind of somehow thought this way of doing it would be most effective.
2: Um, I guess that's what it amounts to.
1: I don't know how you do that, Michael, like how you figure that out. All right.
2: By the way, lest we uh, label on too many compliments about the format, know that um, from time to time over the years, I got very angry letters or emails when email got invented um, from people who had bought or rented the films and were livid about either the content or the format. In fact, one very well known educational organization demanded their money back for I forgot how which I think maybe multiple transitions because it surely was not worth the the money that they had paid just to see some words up on a screen. So it wasn't a universal anything.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um moving on to family transitions um which would have been then the third one and that was about divorce and that's also uh you know maybe a topic that we we were hesitant to to slow down and think very hard about uh and so i i i want to hear about you deciding on that topic and just a, a bit about how you put it together and reception on
2: that one? Well, the context was that I had stumbled into uh, divorce mediation and for 20 years did it as part of my practice. Um, by the way, I was never particularly good at it, uh, but nonetheless.
1: Is anyone? Um,
2: a few rare special folks are. Yeah. It's tough including the fellow I brought in to kind of take over my practice when I was backing, getting to back out of it finally. But one of my frustrations in that uh, mediation practice uh, and also in clinical practice that happened to be with folks who were divorcing was that I seemed miserably inept at getting people's attention about what the experience of the child was. Uh, After a few years of that frustration, I began to see that mostly, even though they say otherwise, mostly moms and dads who were divorcing just flat out don't have room in their emotional life for the emotional life of the child. They're too angry or hurt or lost or afraid and resentful and terrified of vulnerability so they don't want to have the, the, their spouse or about to be ex-spouse see them being tender. Folks almost always say, oh, I only have the best interest of the child at heart. And I know they mean to do so. This is not a criticism of them uh, not meaning to do so. I'm simply saying I think most folks mean to do so but don't, can't. And so I was trying to find out some way to get their attention. And that was the context for family transitions. Mm -hmm. I wondered if I could use a similar format to the first two films to simply have kids of divorce speak of some little tidbit of their experience, nothing big, nothing too loud, just um, this is how it is when I go back and forth. How would you like it if you live your life this way? Those kind of thoughts from babies and toddlers.
1: And did you then use it in the mediation no. process? No. Okay.
2: I, I thought it would be inappropriate to, to use a tool like that. Um, but, but by the way, very few others did either. Uh, by which I mean to say, during the, the, that decade of the 90s, there were getting to be lots of programs uh, court sponsored or sponsored by a local family agency in town that the court would either recommend or demand that divorcing parents go to. And these places would support classes for parents and they would have to go there before they could get their divorce. I was hoping that those programs would adopt the film um, and, and have parents watch it. And many did hundreds did thousands, tens of thousands of programs like that around the country. So I know that a lot of them didn't, and that was disappointing.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay.
2: All right. By the way, that's sort of a testimony for me about what I said earlier. Maybe given the circumstances of divorce, when you're right in the middle of it, maybe even a film as targeted and as empathic as Family Transitions will not make it even into the side door mothers and fathers maybe just can't allow themselves to know that anything they're doing right now is harming their child.
1: Yes, maybe because they're feeling, they so desperately need to make this decision. Yes. And move forward with it.
2: People that come to me clinically, that is to say not part of mediation, Often in the years before I made this film, saying things like, uh, we're thinking about divorcing, but we want to know how to do it in a way that won't hurt our children. And I was bold enough to say, because I, I usually knew I was likely to get fired pretty quickly anyway, uh, I would be bold enough to say, sorry, that, that, that won't happen. The divorce will hurt your child. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it any more than if you ask me, we want to go to Hawaii and we want to put our three month old in childcare for two weeks. I won't, I won't bother him. Will it? And I would have to say, yes, it will. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go, but let's not pretend that this is going to be innocuous. You're going to Hawaii and putting your child in childcare for two weeks uh, at three months of age is not going to be innocuous and you divorcing is not going to be innocuous I will help you come up with a plan that will make it as as unawful as we can make it but that's that's the best we can do
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it will matter So then, uh, Breaking Pieces, and that is spelled like peace, like peace during wartime peace, P-E-I-C-E, Breaking Pieces was the next one to come about, about a, uh, actually, I was going to say a child, but it's actually in utero exposure to domestic violence is part of it.
2: The the opening child's voice is a child in utero, yes.
1: Yes, and
2: yeah, the other film is not that, but.
1: Right, right. And I wanna say, before you share about that one, the reason I was so drawn when I, when I became aware of this film, was so drawn to it, was I, was I was working in foster care at the time. And, you know, domestic violence is, this is often a reason that, that children are being removed. Um, and, you know, so often there was the mindset, well, they might've seen it, but you know, it wasn't them, uh, or know, there was always the line, oh, we never did it where the kids could see it or hear it. Okay. There's always that, you know, even though it would have been impossible for that to be true, uh, based on the layout of the house and where the incident happened and, and all of that but I guess I would say overall there, there was an under, uh, under response or thinking maybe no response since the kid wasn't being smacked around, you know, yeah, it's not great, but I don't know that it had a whole bunch of impact. I, I really feel like that's in a lot of ways is still a pretty prominent view. Um, and so I just thought that this film made it so clear wait a minute that's not the case so that's just my own little personal reaction response and now i want to hear from you about why you made it and and all of that
2: well you've described you've described things that make make my motive pretty clear in uh in designing it and creating in the first place it was simply that uh the whole culture had such a vested interest in pretending that as long as the children were in the other room or something, there was going to be no big deal. Sort of like if you, if you don't get drunk in front of your child, your alcoholism will never affect the child. Uh, as if children are not, don't become incredibly adept at discerning the changing affects of their mothers and fathers when they've been drinking or more, more to the point of what we're talking about here, when they've been fighting. Children are incredibly capable Uh, for for perfectly self-centered reasons. uh, The child needs to know, am I going to be fed? Am I going to be okay? And that my parents have been doing whatever that thing is that they do that makes a lot of noise. uh, And then when they, and then come out of the room, I need to know based on the looks on their faces and how they walk and little funny marks on my mother's chin. I need to know how folks are doing. Is daddy going to be sleeping here tonight? Will mommy stop crying pretty soon? And because it was so difficult for grownups to come to grips with those realities that children are watching, children are attending, um, I thought maybe I could get their attention with a film like this. Mm -hmm. So I start in kind of a mean way. The film starts with a 911 call a real one, by the way, uh, where about a four-year-old child has dialed 911 to scream. Somebody's got to stop them regarding, uh, because there's a baby in the room as well. Um, And you can tell that the, the, the older child is looking after the younger child while the parents are fighting, and the child is trying to get someone to come. It's an awful sound clip. Um, but I hoped it would grab people's attention right from the beginning.
1: Well, it certainly does. Um.
2: And then I decided to use the first example, uh, child's voice in utero, uh, from my own experience. Something I did not remember, but which was which I learned about as an as an adult. Uh, a horrible episode in the upstairs hall. Uh, with my grandfather, whom I was devoted to for all of his life after I was born, uh, beating my mother while I was inside of her. And my uncle, who's one of the two people that told me about it when I was an adult, uh, was a teenager then, and he came flying out of his room and looked up at his, his father, my grandfather, who was huge, and my uncle was not, and told him to leave his sister alone. And I was, of course, a witness to all of that. So I I tried to imagine uh, what I experienced and tried to tell that story in the opening of the film.
1: Yes, yes, it, it was much, much later that I learned that that, that part was personal for you when uh, you shared that, so yeah, and- um,
2: By the way, that uncle that, that so to speak, saved me. Yes. Yeah, was- died this past year and oh. I found myself uh, he, d- he didn't speak to any of us for the last 30 years or so of his life mm. so it's not like we were that close but boy did I find myself profoundly grieving his loss mm. wow sorry to stick that right in the middle of that interview but.
1: Uh, no I appreciate you sharing that um, thank you for that vulnerability to share that. So uh, reception on breaking pieces. To, you know where, where where You know every time I bring up wanting to use it, someone's like, "Oh, well, I don't know if we should." You know, I've wanted to. to I, I've and it's true, but I've wondered for even perpetrators or victims. Does this film have a place? Uh, where, where do we use this film? And, um, it, it's, it's brought up a lot of comments and feelings various times in various ways I've suggested using it. Let's just say that.
2: Well, um, I, I personally would use great caution. I agree. In using it with perpetrators or victims. Yes. I think and it's, I
1: never have because of that. Yeah. I never have. I, I've been too concerned about that. Yeah.
2: And I didn't design it for them. I designed it for uh, workers in, in shelters and uh, judges and caseworkers and others. Uh, but I, to my astonishment, I found that they are um, eager to show it to their parents. They bring it to, to parent groups, survivor groups and so on. And I'm, I'm not in favor of that. But I think it's part of their enthusiasm over maybe what it meant to them, the caseworker, yes, or yes, worker.
1: yes, yes. So I just I just wanted to touch on that because I I think thinking of who the audience who who was this film made for who was the target audience is important to be thinking about with these. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So then, is there anyone in there? And I really distinctly remember that this was a big shift in in the series that wasn't maybe gonna be a series, but is now becoming a series. <laughs> um in that it was the first one, correct me if I'm wrong, that was made from the parent perspective rather than the child perspective. Yes. Yes. So There's that was things. like a total shift. And how did and, and, and so it's a parent's view of adoption. It's called, Is There Anyone In There? So talk to us about this one, Michael.
2: By the way, I should say, it's not only the first one where I, I try to capture the voice of the parent, but it's the first one that almost nobody in the United States of America wanted to buy or see. <laughs> it's just been miserably unpopular.
1: Well, I remember when I wrote to you about it, and said, I was just so impacted by it, thought it was so helpful, thought it was so helpful for clinicians and folks working at Chaddock where we're very focused on the child's experience and can easily become angry, frustrated, whatever with, with parents, that it was such an amazing tool, you know, in terms of building parent empathy. And I do recall you saying, Yours is the only you know thinking that you were probably flooded with similar emails a- about it and that remember you saying this is one of the few pot that- I don't know if it was the only or if it was one of the few positive emails that you said you had gotten about it.
2: you and some guy in Idaho like <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you that it came out of an earnest spirit. Um, I'm sure you. You remember, as children began flooding into America, particularly from Romania during the last uh, part of Ceausescu's reign and after he left, and then from Russia as well. um, We got a whole bunch of kids here in this country that we knew nothing about and who took the child welfare system by storm, but also by surprise. We had no... We gave no education to parents about what to expect. And so what they got came to, to them as a shock and also came to them as a, as evidence of their own badness. I can't tell you how many, well, you you work with parents, you know, how many parents would come to me saying, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I have three other adoptees or... This is my 17th foster child, and I've done the same thing with all of them, and I've just had a wonderful life with all these kids. And then this one, this one is burning my house down, either literally but more often figuratively. My, I, I, I'm mad at my husband all the time, or he's mad at me. We don't have sex anymore. We can't talk. I don't know how to get through to this child. This child bites me. When I try to cuddle this child, he wriggles away from me. He seems to have no need that I can meet. Who is he? And then they would switch often very quickly to erase that question and just say, I don't know what's the matter with me. The child welfare worker tells me, just be patient or love will win out, ultimately.
1: And I just want to share, Michael, I had a similar feeling as a clinician, having worked predominantly with children adopted domestically or out of the foster care system. Um, and you know, in, in some ways, you know, the 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 worst day in foster care in some circumstances is better than the best day in orphanage care. So I was also feeling like, oh yeah, I'm learning about adoption, I'm learning about attachment, I'm learning about trauma, I'm learning about separation. And I started working with these kids. I'm like, I, I, absolutely I absolutely don't even know what I'm doing. Like, this feels totally different. Um, a lot of the things that I thought were effective and were helpful, I mean, it, it, I, I had to discover very quickly that children coming out of orphanage care and children coming from some of these situations... It was a completely different thing. So I think I, my experience as a clinician also mirrored that of parents. Like, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing and the things that I kind of were starting to think maybe work and are helpful or not. And, and so I, I just wanted to share that perspective as well.
2: Yeah. And it, it did some of us in. Some of us began to clutch at really radical holding therapies Because they seem to work, they seem to get through to the child, and that's what parents were desperately wanting. So, we as therapists were trying all sorts of um, what now feel like pretty crazy, desperate things so that we didn't feel so horrible. Right. We failed to take the parents' story seriously at all and just proceeded as if these were just a little more upset kids than the average, but really about the same. And so we did the horrible I'd even call it malpractice acts of having parents wait in waiting rooms while we saw these little preschool kids in our offices doing things with them that we had done with all the other kids we'd seen over the years. And even though none of it was working, we pretended it did. Mm -hmm. By the way, one of the ways I remember early on, um, that led to the pretense that that our our pathetic efforts were working, was that these kids seemed to like us. They'd come into the office with their parents and they'd run up and jump in our arms, and we'd think, oh well, we must be doing a really good job. And the parents would think, oh, he must be doing a really good job. By the way, side view, what's the matter with me? This child seems to like the therapist a lot, but doesn't act that way with me. Yes. Didn't, it took weeks or in some cases years for it to dawn on us that that's abnormal behavior. Yes. <coughs> for a child to jump into my arms in the waiting room is not typical behavior and, and not, is not evidence that I'm a great therapist.
1: Right. 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 So Yes. Very important. So.
2: Long story short, I just finally began to conclude that somebody had to speak up for these parents. Someone had to try to tell the story from their point of view, even though we weren't completely sure what that point of view was. Yes. Except this is harder than I can
1: manage. Yes. Well, our our chime is telling us. We're at the top of the hour, Michael. And we just have one more, if we could, do you, do you still have time to speak briefly about um, they Took My Parents Away?
2: Oh, yes, of course.
1: Yes. So that would be our, our final one to talk about today and just this overview of, of the films. And that's very, well, <laughs> not very recent, but the most recent. Yeah. And this is, a, again, um, a topic that we, you have a good way of uh, bringing Forcing us to look at topics that are maybe ones that we're not inclined to think about carefully enough. This one is: they took my parents away. It's the impact of children on having parents who are incarcerated. Yes. And so, could you share a little bit about that? Bill?
2: Sure. I should I should let you know that that also has been immensely controversial. Uh, it's. It's so difficult to watch for many audiences that I've, I've recommended that people in fact not watch it all at once. There are five stories in this film and I've recommended that people watch one at a time only and stop and at the very least pause. Um, if there's a discussion group that's watching it together, pause and discuss before going on. Or maybe just stop there and come back and watch the the second story on another day, because it's really too much to take in all at once.
1: You know, so, you know, having trained with you, Michael, and using this film, I did notice that that's how you have been using it, and I didn't know what... I, I, I didn't know exactly the rationale behind that. I mean, I, I, I had some ideas, but we've never talked about it until this moment. So when you um, made the film, was it your intent that they would be used like as individual cases, or did you just find that, that the, the reactions that brought up for people, uh, it was then important to, to think about using it that way?
2: No, I did not intend that it would be broken into five separate stories for showing, Uh, but that's really because I I was ignorant. I was naive. I had no idea that it would smack people where it did, and the people being smacked, I hadn't thought through carefully enough, were likely to be family members, and in positions of utter impotence. In other words, Somebody was in prison, let's say my son is in prison and I'm the grandma of a baby and a five-year-old. And I've come to this meeting tonight and I've watched this film. There's nothing I can do about any of it. There's nobody else to take care of this child. My child is not gonna get out of prison very soon and take over parenting. Um, What do you want me to do about this? I would imagine became their plea. And the result was, the first several times I at least showed it, the audience, when the lights were turned back on, was sitting frozen. They had nothing to say. The only comments were often things like, well, I don't think it's that bad, or my child isn't like that. Mm -hmm. So I slowly began to realize I was doing something very unfair. By unloading so much content on very vulnerable but impotent people, and that was usually the families of incarcerated people
1: you know and 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 i've I've been in groups with you or used this myself. Um, it's also interesting how you'll even have therapists or others sort of spontaneously stand up and say, "You know, hey." I had an incarcerated family member or, or even a parent. And I, I, no one's ever stopped to talk about this. No one's ever, you know, made any space to even slow down and think, what does this mean? Everything from you can't have everyone in the family photo to, I mean, it's just been remarkable. It, 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 I guess it's just such a taboo subject that when you bring it to the group, Unexpected places it pops up, this matters, this mattered to me and no one ever said it could or would or did.
2: And you you bring up a good point. The effect that it has on family members is I think really and almost perfectly duplicated in caseworkers and therapists and judges and others. All of us are impotent. There's nothing we can do about the system. There's nothing we can do about a particular child. And why would we fuss over things like the fact that to use the example you just brought up, the child just started crying because th- there's no family picture that has everybody in it. What do you want to So what? By the way, uh, that film came about also in a context, which is that I had begun to volunteer my time at a uh, nearby women's prison for several years and found myself uh, doing parent groups there, and found myself not very effective at generating conversation about their babies and children at home, except to the extent that that I was willing to listen to these mothers say, well, as soon as I'm getting out of here, I'm getting that kid back from my mother. She thinks she's taken over. She thinks she knows so much. I'm going to march right in there and let them know who's the dad or who's the mom. And that would be just about as thoughtful as our conversations got so my frustration rose out of that as well
1: again you know a a fantastic film a, a film very relevant to you know work in the child welfare system and other places you know about topics that we haven't really slowed down and thought about as carefully as we need to and certainly often not from the child's perspective so Michael, I thank you so much for making these. Um, how brave you've been with them and how the insight you've brought to to the field and to the world, um, and just, just for today, for being able to talk about all of them. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting more in depth about some of the films as we continue. So thank you so much.
0: You're very welcome. Do you like what Karen and Michael are talking about? Do you want to learn more and explore his books? We have an exclusive discount code for our podcast listeners. Go to the TKC store at tkcchatik.org and apply the code TROUT20 for 20% off any item in the Michael Trout collection. That's discount code TROUT20, T-R-O-U-T 20 to get 20% off any item in the Michael Trout collection in the TKC store at tkcchatik.org. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchatik.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchatik.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.